Our scripture reading this evening is Ruth 1, 6 through 18. Then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for, uh, bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more, also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, sorry, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we're marching slowly towards Christmas. Even I am not this tall. I'm going to get this down. All right. Are you anticipating it, or are you just wanting it to be over? Anybody like that? Okay. Well, that sounded cynical, Pastor Tim. All right, we've been uh, looking at this. The setup to the Christmas story comes in Matthew 1, and the setup is that genealogy. And commonly, we think it's kind of boring. So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so. But in antiquity, your family and your your last name and your peoples, where you came from, uh, think of it as your resume. And that's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Uh, In modernity, it's kind of more your educational path, your internships, your accomplishments, your inventions, whatever that may be, uh, but not in antiquity. It's more, it's centered your family. So what is odd about Matthew 1 is we see in Jesus's genealogy, uh, we see uh, five women in that genealogy. And that would be, one would be rare, uh, but five shows that there's a lot of prominence Uh, and reasons why Jesus wants five women on his resume, as it were. 
And it's important for a couple reasons, because it's a rarity, like I said, women uh, couldn't legally own property, and their testimony wasn't even legal in a court of law. This isn't just Bible land in Israel, this is ancient cultures. And so you have come a long way, baby, you have, with more miles to go. The second reason why it's important is that it does mean that the stories on Jesus' resume are incredibly important. Like they mean something. It's not just a begat, begat, begat. Uh, They're incredibly important. If we're going to understand who Jesus is, then the stories of those five women are incredibly important because they tell us how Jesus is. And Jesus wants us to know he is this way because of these five stories. Uh, There are more stories there, but the five stories of these women are what we're kind of going through through Advent, and we're calling it the mothers of Jesus. Ryakita and Lainey Lian, they made some dioramas to capture these visual accounts. And you can look at them. See, if, you've, if you haven't seen them before, look at them afterwards. They're over there. They did a great job for the artwork for this series. Tonight is uh, Ruth the Moabite. And I'm going to tell just a little story about Ruth. And then at the very end, uh, we're just going to extract... Just a couple lessons. Ruth is in a section of verses. I know we read verse or from chapter one, but we're gonna cover kind of the whole story of Ruth and we're gonna extract something that points to why Jesus has Ruth on his resume. So the story of Ruth uh, starts with Naomi, actually, and she is living in Israel. And if you remember, this is when the 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 Israelites, the Hebrews, when they left Egypt and after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, when they made it to the promised land and they secured some land, uh, there was the land allotment, if you remember this. And so each tribe received a portion of real estate, except for the Levites, because God wanted those in the service of his house to rely on him and his people. He didn't give the Levites a land allotment, but everyone else did. And so everybody, all the families in a certain tribe um, got a piece of, it was all split up, subdivided, got a piece of real estate. And the text tells us that something happened to Naomi and her husband to do something drastic. And they sold their ancestral land allotment. You could do that. You could sell it off. Every 50 years in a, land of, in a year of jubilee, land allotments would reset. So in once in a lifetime, hypothetically, everyone could experience a retry at life, even if things had gone bad. But something drastic has happened, and Naomi and her husband sell their ancestral land because there's a pretty severe famine going on in Israel. And so they sell their land, and they head off to Moab. Uh, and Moab. And Naomi says this, is when they left Israel, it, she says this in verse uh, 21. She says, I went away full. I left Bethlehem full. Uh, her, she had a family. She had a husband. She had two strapping sons. She had just a head full of dreams, full of cash and possibility. And they make it to Moab, and uh, the boys grow up. 
and they even find two local Moabite girls for her two strapping sons, Milan and Chilon. And uh, th- those, those girls' names are Orpah and Ruth, Ruth of our story. And that's a big deal, first of all, because there is very much racial hostility, racial and cultural hostility uh, between Moabites and Israelites. And it looks like they're kind of an immigrant success story. They've moved to Moab. It looks like they've adapted and integrated in some way. And their sons have wonderful wives. And then the text tells us a disaster breaks out. Now, we really don't know what happened or how this happened, but it says uh, first Naomi's husband dies. So you kind of get senses of their story starting to crack a little bit. And her husband dies, and then a little bit after, we don't know the exact time frame, but we know that her two sons die. Now, we saw this when we looked at Tamar, and we saw this when we looked at Rahab, but the ancient, uh, ancient security, the ancient power unit, the ancient economic unit, is going to be a family and an extended family that huddles together and helps each other through all sorts of times. Uh, It wasn't, like I said, your educational path or your inventions or your photogenic good looks. The family is where all of your security and economic prospects are. So because of this, Naomi is this older woman, uh, and what has happened to her is that she's lost her ancestral land, but she's also lost her ancestral name because she doesn't have any sons. Uh, the grief is real, the loss is complete. Uh, we see this in the first beginning of uh, Ruth chapter one. She's to- too old to remarry. She even feels it herself. She's too old to remarry. She's too old to bear any children. And she says this when she's talking to uh, Orpah and Ruth. She says, look, uh, even if I had a husband right now, even if I could have another kid right now, are you going to wait until they get older and then you're going to marry those sons? Yeah, that's not happening. So Naomi feels like it's over for her. Uh, Put it this way. Naomi has lost her entire 401k. All of it. Like it's just gone. One morning, no more 401k. So her future is really bleak. Uh, She's lost all economic machine for the help present, for the help future. And her prospects, and we discovered this with Tamar and with Rahab, are uh, it's going to be charity, it's going to be begging, it's going to be prostitution. But this is, if you're not attached to a family, this is your future prospects. Uh, She knows what's ahead. And what's ahead for Naomi is a bitter, bitter bitter life. So, by tradition, Orpah and Ruth, her, her, her daughters-in-law, uh, by tradition, they're kind of still attached to Naomi in a way. They're still attached. They're some sort of kind of family unit. Um, their marriages had made this family. Now they have all this grief and loss. And uh, traditionally, what they would do is probably function as uh, some sort of household together, scrape by together. But Naomi does something, and she sees, okay, it's going to be really difficult ahead. It's going to be, it's going to be just scratching it out. And, 
it's going to be difficult, nothing but difficulty. And uh, she doesn't see that she could remarry, but she sees something. She says, she sees that her daughter-in-laws, they have a possibility to remarry. They really do have this possibility. Uh, their, their prospects are pretty decent, at least in Moab, because they can go back to their original families. They can do that. They could find someone else. So she does this calculus in her head, Naomi does, and she said, look, it's better to probably have a miserable life of one than a miserable life of three. And so she releases them, and we see this in verses 12 and 13. She says, hey, turn back, my daughters. Go, go your own way now. Just, just, just do it. Um, it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Meaning like what God has done to me, I don't want to rub off onto you. Go back. Start, start a fresh life. That's what she's saying. Okay. They weep. There's a scene together where they kind of weep together. And you realize that there's a fork in the road for these daughters-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth. And uh, it says Orpah does a very gracious thing. She honors Naomi, she kisses her, and she goes, but I am going to leave now. I'm gonna take the offer. Thank you for releasing me. Uh, But Ruth does something else, and it says uh, she clung. Now that doesn't mean that she just grabbed and hugged her. It's a Hebrew term that says, um, it's, it's, she just stayed so close that she didn't, we would say, she did not bail. Like she's, she was just, I'm not budging. It's kind of the, the, the Hebrew term there. And she says this, um, Naomi, Naomi does something loving, but she tries to talk some gentle sense into Ruth. I mean, just, she goes, look, uh, your sister-in-law has gone and She's gone to her people. She's gone to her gods. This is in verse 15. Uh, do what she has done. This just makes sense. And Ruth says this. We get this in verse 16. She says, stop trying to convince me. She says this to Naomi. Uh, wherever you travel, that's where I'm going. Wherever you stay, that's where I'm staying. Uh, if you stay at the Hampton Inn, I'm at the Hampton Inn. Wherever you stay, I'm staying. Your family's now my family. Your God is the God I'm going to follow now. She says that. That's interesting. Uh, they're just going to have to bury us together. That's what she's saying. She said they're going to have to get us matching headstones. And then she uses this cultural, it kind of doesn't come across, this little idiom. Uh, she says, may Yahweh make me die anyway. Like, may, may Yahweh put soil over my head if I go away from you in any other way besides death. So this is what, this is what Ruth is kind of saying. She's saying, till death do us part. That's what she's saying to Naomi, her mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> side note, how many people of you would say that to your mother-in-law? Okay, let's go on. All right. Uh, Naomi says, okay. Um, you brought Yahweh into it. And she sees that Ruth is determined and she stops talking about it. She stops talking about it. She doesn't bring it up. It's settled. So Naomi makes the call to uh, immigrate 
back to Israel. So she's been in Moab. She makes the call to go back to Israel. And she kind of makes this, it's better to beg among your own people and some maybe neighbors you know than it is to beg with strangers that are hostile. It's probably better to do that. So I'm going to go back to Israel. In fact, she immigrates back to Bethlehem. Now, if you have your Christmas radar on, like, can you, can you, can you hear the sleigh bells ringling, jingling? Huh? Can you grab that? All right, it's like this strange class reunion. Bethlehem is a buzz. And this is what they ask. They say, is that Naomi? Now, she's older, and we all know we look older when we go back to a class reunion. So they're like, is that Naomi? What happened there? What's her story? Where's her husband? Where's her sons? They ask. It's in the text. And Naomi has this really sharp response back. It's like needle sharp. And she said, don't you dare call me Naomi. You know what Naomi means? It means sweet. Don't you dare call me Naomi. Call me Mara. It's Hebrew for bitter. She's bitter. She's bitter at God. She's bitter in Greek. Don't you dare call me Naomi. Call me Mara. So they begin this this life of poverty and hardship. Now, I'm not going to touch on it much in this sermon. We'll go through Ruth one day. Uh, But the rest of this story is a doozy um, because Naomi is of an age where she really can't help with supporting them. So Ruth is put in this position where she has to get a job But this job is just picking up remnants of barley. And they run into Boaz, and Boaz is a kind guy. But but this is pretty chilling when you read Ruth. (laughs) This This is the chilling part. Boaz is a nice dude, but he has to order his field hands to do something because it's a common practice. He has to command them to do something, and he says, don't abuse the woman. Like, don't hit her. Don't do worse. Like, this is pretty chilling. And, and, and Ruth comes back to Naomi, and Naomi was like, oh, yeah, Boaz is a good guy. Um, like, this was common practice to do abuse and do worse to Moabite women who were begging and in poverty and had no other recourse than to pick up remnants of barley. I hadn't seen that before. That's pretty chilling. Like, he had to order his own hands not to do it. It was that common of a practice. Now, uh, Boaz is called, it's called the Goel. And Boaz, as they find out, Naomi is just like, wait, he is the only guy that could be my kinsman redeemer. Now I'll explain that. So they sold their ancestral land. And you had to find someone connected to your family by blood. So it could be a distant uncle or something like that. Had to be in your tribe. And they could, by 
Jewish law now, they could buy back the ancestral land, but it would have to be out of their own generosity. And by law, so let's say a foreigner owned that land, the foreigner in the, in the bounds of the ancestral allotment, they were bound to sell it. Now it would be at fair market price, but they had to sell it if you found somebody to be your kinsman redeemer. Second, something had to happen, is uh, it would have to happen that Ruth would have to uh, marry Boaz because they didn't have a male to inherit the ancestral allotment back. So two things happened to happen. Boaz had to be a really generous guy, and he had to marry Ruth, which the prospects aren't that great. Moabite woman, he has to tell people, yeah, don't abuse her. She's that poor. She's no, no prospects to give him. Ruth takes matters into her own hands. Now, um, she does a cultural thing, but I, I, I don't know if we feel the force of how shocking this is, even like in Jewish lore. Uh, it probably doesn't sound that shocking to this day, but what she does is a gutsy move. She essentially goes to Boaz at midnight and proposes to him. All right, uh, that's a lot to handle. But she's bold, an outsider, racially, uh, socially. It's a bold move that Ruth does here. Well, uh, Boaz is okay with this arrangement. Ruth bears a son. Now, Ruth's son is Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, your Christmas spidey sense should be totally tingling now. Oh my goodness. What, the bells are ringing now. Uh, All right. Do you know what the people of Bethlehem say in Ruth chapter four? They say this. I'll read it. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. All right, let's grab two small lessons. There's so much more in Ruth, but let's grab some lessons. Uh, Number one, I don't know if you saw this, but Ruth, I'm talking about Ruth now, the daughter-in-law, the Moabite, is converted to Yahweh through friendship. All right, so Ruth had her own gods. Every nation and culture had their own gods. But she experienced something with Naomi that she did not experience with her own gods and culture. Because Naomi sacrificially released her. Out of what? Love for Ruth. Ruth, sweetie, your life is going to be better without me. I release you. You don't have to stay. 
It's a sacrificial move. Um, this is it. Is Ruth saw Naomi's destitution and prospects. She saw loss after loss, her own grief. And you know what convinced her? Naomi releasing her. She experienced a sacrificial love. Uh, this is where we see the change. It's in the text. It's so beautiful. When she talks and explains to Naomi why she's doing what she's doing and what, what she's going to do by staying with her, do you know what she changes? She changes from God, using the word general name, general word for God, and she says this. She switches to Yahweh. That's the covenant name for God. And she says, I want the Lord, Yahweh, to be my God too. We see something powerful. Is Ruth was pulled in to the people of God, the historical people of God, through a friendship. Now, I want you to think of this. I think this is a, um, we have neighbors you have neighbors in our communities, San Marino, San Gabriel, Alhambra, South Pass, Pasadena. And I'm just gonna tell you, is we're not gonna win our neighbors by dragging them here. We're not gonna win our neighbors by buttonholing them, saying, you must believe in the exclusive God, and I have a napkin, and here's a chasm, and I'm gonna draw a cross in the middle, and look, and would you have some coffee with, you need it. You need to believe this. Uh, look at this. I want you to see this. Is by giving up that right to exclusive claim of God and saying, no, 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 no. I want you to experience the sacrificial love of Yahweh through this friendship. Do you, do you know, uh, I, I'm just telling you, our neighbors are going to know Jesus through a friendship. And do you know how you get a friendship? You get it through time and you get it through commitment. And this is what I mean by that. You, can, you can't just do one. You can't be like, I'll spend a lot of time with you, and then let's say something really bad happens to them, and you bail. No, it has to be through time and commitment. I'm gonna stick around you when your life is golden, when you are in a good mood, when you're in a bad mood, when your fortunes have crashed or your fortunes are high. I am gonna stick with you till death. Like, I'm gonna stick with you. You're going to taste my relationship and friendship with you regardless of your status. But it's going to be time, too. We are not going to convert our neighbors by acquaintances. You can't just say, hey, I know these people. And someday they're just going to look at me and say, you know what? I've always wondered. They're, they're just nice Christians. You're not going to do it. It's going to be through a friendship. This is so instructive for us. Ruth is brought to the living Yahweh by experiencing what the sacrificial, kind love of Naomi that released her and said, even me needing you, I say, go your own way for your own good. That's powerful. It's powerful. That's the first lesson that we're going to pull. The second lesson that we're going to pull is this, is that God is always working. 
all the time. He does not stop working. He hasn't stopped working your life. He hasn't stopped working in my life. God is always working. If you feel like it or if you don't feel like it, God is always working. God is always working. Perhaps, maybe even more so, in the mundane, in the routine, and in the insignificant that you don't see and that you're blind to, God is always working. Where do I get that in Ruth? It's interesting in the book of Ruth, uh, there are no miracles, no visions, no prophets, no dream. God doesn't speak in the book of Ruth. You have a friendship, you have a hard scrabble life, just scratching it out. It's a difficult daily life. And this is it, is Naomi doesn't see that God is working. She doesn't see it. Do you know what she tells her friends from Bethlehem, her old high school friends in in Bethlehem? She says this, I've come back empty. I've got nothing. All of us say, nothing? What about Ruth? That's kind of great. Naomi doesn't see it, does she? I've come back and I've got nothing. God is always working. God is always working. Um, Everybody else sees it. Ruth is worth seven sons. Seven sons. It's the number of perfection in Hebrew. Ruth is worth seven of those. Everybody else sees it. God is always working. Um, I, I got this, um, I subscribed to the Atlantic, of course, and, um, uh, and on the cover of the Atlantic, it shows um, um, some of the big, heavy leader power, heavy hitters in the world. A lot of them despots and, and kind of crazy, but, but they can fit them on the cover. How many open positions are there for big, bad, tough ruler of a country? Like, we only have so many thrones. But we have a ton of mangers, don't we? Most of us. Mangers, mangers, mangers. And God works through mangers. God is always working. Time and time again, he says, I am going to work through the small, the insignificant. Uh, Rahab, Tamar, the poor, you didn't know about them. It's going to come from Bethlehem, a backwater. Uh, it's going to be Ruth. It's going to be the most, like, I'm going to, I'm going to, I am going to surprise you by my power through the weak and the insignificant. God works through majors. God is always working. God is always working. God is always working. Perhaps, maybe, more so than all the things you think are useless and insignificant, and there's no way that anything good can come of this. Naomi says, I come back empty, and stuff happens by the hand of God. Okay, why is Ruth on Jesus' resume? Um, You know, three of the five women are not Israelites, outsiders, total outsiders, with no name. Ruth the Moabite, brought in, given a name, all right, this is going to sound incredibly mean, but just interpret it as pastoral gentleness, okay? But it's going to sound mean. <laughs> You're like, oh, great. All right. Um, 
I don't know how to put this. I'll just get it out. I don't think historians, historians are going to be talking about anybody in this room 3,000 years from now. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I really don't. From me included, I just don't think, I don't think they're going to be talking about you. But tonight, guess who we're talking about? Ruth. We're talking about some Ruth tonight. What? She was given a name, and from her, she was going to have an heir, a great-great-grandson, who was the name above all names. All right. Why is Ruth on Jesus' resume? Uh, Because famine, poverty, disease, and death of the people you love, loss of property, loss of reputation, is not hopeless. Drink that in. That's why she's on Jesus' resume. I want you to think about this. Our community here has some incredible immigrant stories. If you pay attention, if you just ask people about their family and their history, we have some incredible immigrant stories. The parents were gutsy, courageous. Like, we're going to leave the familiar, and we're going to go to this strange place where we don't know how to navigate things, and our, our English is bad. And we're going to try to make a go of it. Uh, uh, in, in my last church, we had a, a Korean worshiping community and an English-speaking community, and we were trying to bridge the gap between the two. And so we came up with this thing where we'd have ESL classes and we'd have KSL classes um, because Americans, um, we always expect, you know, oh, um, come learn English, and that's how we'll get to know you. Well, uh, our leadership said, no, why don't we have um, the crazy Americans also go through KSL classes, and we'll, we'll, meet, we'll try to meet each other in the middle of that bridge. Okay, so the ESL classes, when we had split up, we did it by category of vocation and profession. And so, w- this is a true story. W- um, uh, the doctors... We're meeting with um, a couple of Korean doctors whose English just was not there. They were fresh immigrants. And one doctor, uh, he had to support his family. So do you know what he was doing? He was gutting and skinning catfish at a catfish uh, factory. Or not factory, but, you know, processing center. Thank you. They made catfish there. Um, but all the time in the ESL classes, he was learning what? The professional English so that he could work things out. Do you know why this guy was taking this menial job? It's a minimum wage job. It is a nasty job. Have you been around gut catfish all day? He took this job, why? For the prospect that something would get better for himself and for his family. And that's why he immigrated. And our, our community has gorgeous stories of people just brave and courageous to say, I'm going to make it better. I'm going to make it better. But look at Ruth. <laughs> She's going to immigrate too. 
And she knows what happens to an outsider Moabite woman. And her prospects are not better, they're worse. And she says, I'm gonna immigrate. What? Ruth, you crazy. Um, Why is Ruth on Jesus' resume? Do you know of anybody else who is leading a cush, comfortable, wealthy, esteemed, respectable, luxe life and says, I think I'm going to immigrate to humanity and I'm going to have nothing but rejection and poverty and misunderstanding Well, do you know why Ruth is on Jesus' resume? Because Jesus himself, in an astronomical way, is bigger than what Ruth's beautiful work was. And her great-great-grandson was going to do that in a much bigger way to bring us back and give us friendship with God himself. That's a pretty good Christmas story, isn't it? Let's pray. Our Father and our God. Um, Ruth isn't just an example. We know that. It just points to her great-great-grandson who would just scale it up. but we thank you that she's on your resume. We thank you that you've brought us in. Not by her life, but your very own. Apply that to us in this season and this night and going forward, amen.